Good morning, church. Uh, it's great to come together. And uh, before we start the message, I just want to make a brief announcement. Um, if you recall, I said as we go along in this uh, Titus series, I'd ask if there's any elder candidates that come to mind as we understand more the character of an elder, the qualifications of an elder, the role of an elder, this is where I would like to ask you guys, start thinking and praying if faces and names come to mind, men who've already been doing this in the local church. It could be at Evergreen. It could be anybody who's a layman. It could be anyone who's on staff even. Please email me. I would love to kind of hear your thoughts about this. This would be very helpful as we start journeying down this road. So, so any elder candidates that come to mind. But today we take another step in through Titus, in Titus chapter 2, 9 through uh, 15, we'll go through it. And now it gets very practical. It gets really practical now where before we're speaking about the elder, we're speaking about the function of these leaders, the heartbeat of the church. And now the Lord is teaching us at Evergreen Church what it means to be a healthy worker, a healthy worker. Everyone's going to work, or everyone is working right now. And work is a good thing. In Genesis, God's task Adam to care for the garden. This is before the pre-fall, before, uh, before the fall. And work is good. So work is a good thing that we all get to do. And I did a little study, uh, according to a study that I read, on average for 79, for 79 years of life, you'll spend... 90,000 hours working. All right, this is on average. Of course, there's more or less for some, but on average in America, you'll spend 90,000 hours working. This equates to over 13 years of your life. Non-stop working. This is what we do, right? And so, and the percentages is, works out to be 16.5% of your life you're working. So work is an important part of our lives. This is nothing to shy away from. There's nothing to deny. Work is a good thing. And after all, I could assure you, many of us give our best waking hours to our work. Our coworkers see the best version of us oftentimes as we're fresh, we're energized, we're focused to do a good job. This is a good thing. Therefore, we need to know what healthy workers look like. In, In other words, what we're called to do at work and how to do it. So this is very practical. So let's turn to Titus chapter 2, um, 9 through 15. I was encouraged this morning as someone in my ACE class whispered to me, bring the book. I said, yes, sir, I'll bring the book. And uh, hopefully you have your book. Hopefully you have your copy of the book, either in paper form or through your phone. So Titus chapter 2, 9 through 15, we're continuing on with our the heartbeat of a healthy uh, church series. And just a little review, to add a little bit more context, Titus begins with God, right? Remember we talked about God, and God is the heart and the head of our church. And God provides His eternal word, and He provides the eternal word to equip the heartbeat of the church, the elders, to teach and minister the word to equip the saints, to equip the hands and feet for the work of ministry. Last week, we learned how the hands and feet are to teach the youngers. The older men, older women are to teach the younger men, younger women. What a encouraging thing that is in our homes, but also in the life of the church. So today, the Lord breaks our church huddle and sends out healthy workers into the workplace. So now we're stepping out of our homes. We're stepping out of our church building, so to speak, and we're going to work. And so Titus chapter 2, 9 through 15, gives us the idea of what we're called to do and how we're to do it. So let's rise as we honor the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2, 9 through 15. I'll be reading out a Legacy Standard uh, Bible. Verse 9, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, 
righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purity, purity for himself, a pe- purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and precious word. Father, I pray your spirit would give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray your spirit would empower me to preach, Lord, faithfully and relying upon your spirit. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Yes, church, the the Bible says, slaves submit to your masters in verse 9. The word for slaves might be bondservant or servant in your version, or bond slaves, but it's the word doulos, which means slave. Slaves submit to your masters. So I think I need to do a little bit of explaining, and so let's understand a little bit more cultural context before we just move into the uh, the sermon here. So let's go back in time. We need to go back in time. Anytime we read the Bible, we want to go back in time when it was written. And we'll get in our time machine right now. And so first century Greco-Roman world, slavery was a huge part of the society. In large part, if slavery didn't happen, the entire economy, entire empire would just collapse. Wealthy people own slaves. This is part of normal life. According to John Stott, he writes that more than 50 million, 50 million slaves were in the empire, the Roman Empire. 50 million. He talks about the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. One third of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. So if you imagine that, this is a normal part of life. And why did this happen? Well, Rome was a dominant power and conquered lands. What do you do when you conquer people? You take them as prisoners of war. So basically, as you conquered lands, you took the best and the brightest, similar to like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You take the best and the brightest and bring them back home to be servants, to be slaves. And so these slaves oftentimes were educated, trained, skilled, doctors, lawyers, and of course, laborers. But you got, you, you had the pick of the litter as you conquered nations. And Paul addresses this issue because undoubtedly there were slaves in the Cretan churches. He had to address this situation. And so Paul does address it. So you, we understand a little bit better what slavery was like in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Now let's get back in our time machine and come back to the future here. We do not have any slaves here at Evergreen Baptist Church. As they say, well, Pastor, why don't you just skip that, right? Why, why do we go over this portion? Well, I think there's a lot of truth. There's principles to be drawn out of here. And so the, the principles would be for workers and bosses. All of us work. All of us will work someday. The Bible says if you want to eat, you should work. So the work is a good thing. That's why... Parents send our youth and our young adults to be educated so you can work, so you can have uh, an opportunity to compete in the workforce. I love being in the workforce, in the secular world, that is. I mean, keep in mind, church, it was only seven years ago that I was in the secular. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I, I saw that as an opportunity to advance the gospel because, think about it. Think about your own work situation. I was with people, seeing them regularly, sometimes even more than my own family at times. We were able to experience the joys of work and the sadness of work. We're going through all that together. This is a fertile ground for evangelism. And so I knew, and even in my coaching world, coaching my day, coaching days, I knew I need to be strategic but how to evangelize the people that I get to see every single day almost. It was like a stewardship. Why did God place me here with these certain people? And so think about all the people that you're 
rubbing elbows with every single day. And hopefully they're good relationships. But even if they're not, think about how God providentially has placed you and them together. This is a mission field. And so Paul is going to tell us what the main emphasis of the worker is. And in, in verse Nine, uh, verse 10 at the bottom it says so that they would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything a healthy worker from the church from Evergreen Baptist Church sees himself herself as an evangelist you are a representative of Jesus Christ so this is a critical role where we're called to be good workers who bring the good news to the people that you get to see every single day at least maybe Monday through Friday Okay, I know some of us are working remotely, but we still get to interact with non-believers constantly. So right here, it's very encouraging also in this too. As we see what we're called to do, God does not require advanced degrees. God does not require high positions or having some kind of a platform. God doesn't require any certain skill set or status. Look at these. Even slaves can be powerfully used to advance the gospel. And the question is, how? How does that happen? And, and let's look to verse 9 here. This is very clear. There's nothing mystical, nothing super uh, special about this. This is this, verse 9. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be pleasing, not contradicting, not pilfering or stealing, but demonstrating all good faith. That's how you advance the gospel. As a good worker, you submit to your bosses. This is what it says. Clearly, be pleasing, not contradicting or argumentative. That means you're a supportive employee. That means you're trying to help your boss. That means you're trying to encourage him by being submitted to him or her. That means that you are uh, not pilfering or stealing or embezzling money or, or stealing time. Meaning, when you're supposed to work, you're working. You're not doing other things. You're working. They pay you to do a job and you're actually doing it during that time. So that you will be, you'll be demonstrating all good faith, meaning you'll be completely trustworthy. In the ancient world, sometimes slaves were entrusted to watch the whole household. I mean, think about it. The, the vivid example that comes to mind is Joseph. Potiphar said, Hey, I entrust you with everything. You, you control every single thing except don't touch my wife, right? I mean, that's, probably goes without saying Joseph understood this Joseph was an example of a slave who earned the trust of his master but is this submission without limits of course not Colossians 3 gives us a clear clear idea what this looks like basically says work as unto the Lord there is definitely a, a limitations of submission even in our marriages even in our workplaces there is limitations in other words you're serving God so if your master calls you to sin against God, obviously, do you obey God or man? You obey God. This is what it is. You obey God rather than man. And right there, when you do this, when you're a submitted worker, and let's just put the focus on the uh, employer right now. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you're in a uh, leadership role. Think how encouraging it is when those underneath you actually submit to you in that way. It's so encouraging, right? It's so life-giving, isn't it? You enjoy coming to work. You see people fired up to for the mission and the vision of your workplace. It's just so exciting. You can see how that would, if you're a non-believer, warm your heart up as your employees and workers would support you like that. Okay, so just know the put yourself in the other in the other person's shoes, workers or uh, employees. What your how your boss feels when you submit to them. It's, it's such a beautiful thing, picture here. Now, verse ten it says, "So that they will adorn." What does adorn mean? To make look good, make attractive. So, in other words, to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Healthy workers display the gospel well. When you submit well, when you support well, when you're loyal, trustworthy, you adorn the gospel really well. You make the gospel look really attractive. In some ways, your bosses are kind of peaked, like, and you per- perk their, uh, your, their attention, like, whoa, what's different about this person? Oftentimes, most people are kind of not like this. Why are you a little bit different from everybody else? Your coworkers can see that Christ 
is the greatest treasure of your life, right? This is the key as you walk into the workplace. Do you adorn Christ like, like, a, like a fancy or expensive necklace where you're just wearing him well everywhere you go by how you serve? By how you serve. I mean, you're just like a walking gospel advertisement. That's what you are. That's what we are. That's what I was at the Seahawks and other places. So now the f- sermon really is going to answer one question. It's clear, slaves or servants submit to your masters. In no unclear terms, that's what we're called to do. But how do we do that? And I want to answer this one question. How do we adorn the gospel well at work? How do we adorn the gospel well at work? Think about it. 90,000 hours, okay? 90,000 hours. This is an important uh, topic here. So number one, we're healthy workers adorn the gospel well, when we know that we are saved by grace. Number two, when we're saved for godliness. And of course, we'll cover all these in depth in a moment. And we're number three, we're saved for glory. Saved for glory. Let's go to point number one. Healthy workers are adorned the gospel well when we know that we are saved by grace. Let's look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. What is grace? We have to understand what grace means. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing these songs. We talk about grace. What does grace mean? And, and, and quite honestly, this may be difficult for some of us to grasp because many of us have come to, come from backgrounds, maybe from immigrant families and our parents are first generation from the old country and they worked. And you've seen people work. You've seen your parents work. You've seen your grandparents work. And you've seen how everything was earned. Everything was an uphill battle. This is kind of how we grew up. You know, as a, as a gardening family, we worked. This is what we did in football. Everything is earned. In some ways, we take a lot of pride, hopefully in the right sense of the word. Maybe, I don't know if there is a the right sense of the word, but in earning everything. So I really need to dig, dig deep into understanding what grace means. And the best way to explain it maybe is to do a compare and contrast. What is the difference between a gift and a wage? What's the difference between a gift and a wage? Well, a wage is earned. You work hard. You are working at your work site. You're diligently uh, um, uh, working out to improve your body. Whatever it is, you that's a wage that you earned from your labors. Okay, You work, therefore you should expect to have your salary or your, your paycheck. That makes sense. Then that's the right thing to do. A gift is simply given. Take this brother. Take this sister. I just want to bless you. What do I do? Nothing. I just want to encourage you. That's a gift. Not in the sense of I gave you a gift and I got to return the, the gift. Not that. It's just a true gift without any motivation of anything in return. Here, I just want to bless you. That's a gift. So in other words, what is grace? Grace is receiving unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Like someone just gives you and blesses you. And this someone is God right here. For the grace of God has appeared, the Bible says. What is this talking about? This is talking about Jesus Christ. The one who paid it all, Jesus paid it all, the one that we've been singing about. So grace is most embodied perfectly in the appearing of Jesus Christ. You want to learn more about grace? You study Christ. And it's talking about his incarnation, the first Christmas when he came. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16 will go on to say, for of his fullness we have received, we have all received and grace upon grace. If you want to learn more about grace, study about the life of Christ. He embodied God's grace in its fullest. And what does that, what did that do when Christ came? He brought salvation, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. Saved from what? Saved from what? We're going to go deeper into this, but in essence, this is the heart of Christianity. If you're visiting, if you're not quite sure what Christianity is about, Christianity says that Jesus Christ, God himself, freed us from slavery to sin and eternal judgment. Meaning we had were once chained to something called sin, which is basically rebelling against God, 
And we were also chained to the penalty of what sinners uh, face someday, judgment someday. And God frees us through this, saves us from all these things, and He really has just saved us from His, from His own judgment towards us. And I want to just explain something here, take a little kind of a side note here. It says in verse um, 11, bringing salvation to all men, all men. And why do I want to stop there? Is, is Paul the apostle preaching or promoting universalism, meaning every human being will be saved? Obviously not. Obviously not. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace, this is Paul's own writing, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? And it's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so if you have, if you are unbelieving, you have already been judged, the Bible says. So clearly believing faith is a critical part of receiving this salvation. So what is Paul talking about to all men then? Isaiah 49, as Brother Keith read, says this, not this servant is to bring salvation not just to Israel, but he's to be the light to the nations. He's to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, what Paul's writing here is this he's saying salvation is available to all kinds of men. Whether you're a Jew, because there are Jews in the Cretan churches, whether you're a Cretan or a Greek. Or a Gentile, salvation is available to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In other words, Paul is saying that, affirming and confirming Christ has brought salvation, not just to the promised people of Israel, but to all the world. So in other words, salvation has been brought to all kinds and every type of nation and person. Now let's apply this. Do we understand grace a little bit more? How do we adorn the gospel at work? So this is where I want to help us apply this to our lives. We've been talking about what does it make, what does it mean to be a great teammate on the pastoral team? We spent a couple of weeks dialoguing, throwing ideas on the board, and we wrote it up and typed it up and kind of came up with some categories. And what makes a great teammate? You know, because we want to be a great pastoral team. And, uh, I was brought to mind a memory that I had when I was coaching. We would discuss things back and forth, and this is what we should do. This is how we could stop them. This is where we should uh, align our players. And we would be at odds sometimes. We would talk about these things, and this was great. But at the end of the day, when the coach said, this is what we need to do, after all the discussion was done, it was like, all right, let's do it. And the idea was, I don't, I may not even necessarily agree that this is the best approach, but let's make this decision a great call. Let's make it a great call. Let's be enthusiastic as we coach this up. Let's make it, uh, make the players believe this is the best thing for our team. And so I was explaining this and because I understand like sometimes our bosses aren't perfect. We know this. No, no boss, no employee is perfect. We understand that. And we need to show grace. Whether you're a worker or whether you're the boss, you need to extend grace. Do you understand that we've been treated with great grace? How can we not treat our coworkers, our bosses, and our and our employees with grace? Like I said, there's no perfect bosses, but it's submission, if you're the worker right now, contingent upon circumstances. I like him. I don't like him. She pays me enough. She doesn't pay me enough. She lets me do what I want to do. She doesn't let me want to do what I want to do. She goes with my ideas. She doesn't go with my ideas. I mean, that, those are circumstances. Is your full submission and support contingent upon these things? Well, evidently in the slave world, that's not, I don't know how much discussion there was back then. But the Bible says to be pleasing, not contradicting, not argumentative. That means that whatever is decided, you as an employee or as a worker, make that a great decision. Make that boss of yours successful. 
Right? Doesn't mean you don't tell them what you think, but at some point when the discussion's done, let's move ahead and do it with great enthusiasm. This is what we're talking about here. This is the level of support. This is how you adorn the gospel really well to your boss. And this is where you have to understand, is this a biblical conviction that you have or is this just personal preference? If it's biblical, obviously you do not violate your conscience. But if it's more of a preferential thing, go with it. Go with it and help him or her be successful. And quite honestly, this is not always common. Whether it's in football or other worlds that I've been in, this is not common for everybody. We, 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 this will make you an uncanny, a, a different type of person at work where your boss looks forward to seeing you come to, to the office, right? All right, let's get to the next point. Healthy workers not only uh, know that we're saved uh, by grace, healthy workers adorn the gospel well when we know that we are saved for godliness. Godliness. Verse 12 right here says, Instructing us, what's instructing us? The grace of God has appeared, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We're saved for godliness. It's bookended by denying ungodliness and to live godly. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to do. We're saved to be godly. And it's interesting how Paul uses instructing or discipling us or training us through grace. Grace is like a personal coach for us. The more we understand grace, it instructs us. Let me explain. Not only does grace save us, the grace also trains us. Grace saves us. Grace also trains or sanctifies us. And so salvation and sanctification go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. If you're a saved man, saved woman, you're going to grow in your sanctification as you understand grace more. And what is this? What does godliness look like? It looks like Moses fleeing from Egypt. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and for those of us who know the Old Testament story, how Moses could have lived the life. He he was a prince of Egypt. He had everything ahead of him, but he needed to be an Egyptian. But by God's grace, he turns his back on Egypt and flees from Egypt. And basically, what does godliness look like? You deny ungodliness. That means you abandon, you run from contrary living to God. You deny worldly desires. You run from worldly standards. You reject living for the world's promises. You don't buy the lie of the workplace, right? For living for money and and comfort. That's not what you're about. That's not what you're about. You turn your back on short-term pleasures. This is what we're talking about. Instead, just like Moses, you live sensibly. You're, you have a, you're self-mastered. You know your priorities is to live for God, and that's how you order your life. Not only that, you run from these things. You also live righteously. You live according to God's standard. And then you live godly, Christ-like. And you know as you're sitting here, the Bible makes perfect sense that Christians should be godly, but... I know for my own self, sometimes I don't feel this way. And maybe you're sitting here right now thinking, I want to, but I just can't deny certain things. It's so hard. I've been working so hard for this career. I've been working so hard for this pay. I've been working so hard for this advancement. I've been working so hard to get to a certain level of uh, of leadership or status at my work. Well, I think we need to understand something. How does... This is very important. How does grace actually instruct us to be godly? How does grace actually coach us up to be more godly? This is important. This is important because motivation is critical here, guys. We know this. And and some of us may be motivated out of fear. I I better be godly or else, right? That's, That's a form of motivation. I understand that. But that's not the motivation that Paul's talking about here in Titus chapter 2. I'm going to just say this ahead of time. Love is the greatest motivating force. Love is the greatest motivating force more than fear. Of course, the more we fear and revere God, the more the love of God will mean to us. But love is the greatest motivating force in our lives for a Christian. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God. And Bible says that love motivated 
God to send His Son, for God so loved the world. So as we preached, however many, several weeks ago, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us, pressures us to become more godly. Luke 7, write this down in the notes. Take a look at it later. But Luke 7, 40 to 50, Jesus tells a parable to help explain what, how grace instructs us to be godly. In this parable, there are two debtors forgiven of their debt. They, they, they owed, one owed 500 denarii, which is equivalent to 20 months wages. 20 months wages. Another man uh, owed 50 denarii, denarii which, which is worth two months wages. Two big paychecks, right? And, and Jesus asked those who are listening, who loved more? I believe Simon answered and says, the one who has forgiven more. And he goes, you answered correctly. And during that time, there was a woman sitting at the feet of Christ. He was trying to explain why this woman was so in love with Christ. This woman was cleaning the feet of Christ with her tears and her hair. This woman was kissing the Lord's feet without stopping. This woman was anointing the feet with her precious perfume. The Lord says this to all the disciples, all the Pharisees gathered around and explains the heart of this one devoted sister. He says this, Luke seven forty-seven, Luke chapter 7, verse 47. For this reason I say to you, say to you, her sins, which are many, she was a great sinner, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This woman understood grace. This woman understood that, Jesus, you're my life. Because without you, the Pharisees were denying me. The community was denying me. I had nothing. It was clear that I'm a sinner. But Christ gives her the time of day. And lets her sit at his feet. Church, do we understand how much we have been forgiven? I'm going to give some probing questions here. Deep inside, I mean, maybe not on the intellect, but deep inside in the heart of hearts. Do you have any thoughts that you actually deserve heaven? I am not as bad as that guy. I, I should go to heaven. Do you have inside of you, deep inside your thoughts, that, that you lived a good life? I'm living pretty good. Do you actually have those thoughts? Do you actually have thoughts deep, deep? Maybe you might not even confess this to anybody that you think, I do so much for you, Lord. Of course I'm going to heaven. You know intellectually that those aren't right thoughts, but are there, any, are there any thoughts deep inside that you have hidden within yourselves? If there's any hint of that, and that's all of us. That's me too. We're all, if there's any hint of that in you, we all need to understand grace more. We all need to understand grace more. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to just march this down. Because this second point, is I'm going to spend the most time because this is so important. Because if we understand grace more, we're going to be changed men and women. Youth, you got to understand what grace is. This is all about grace, grace, grace. Ephesians chapter 2. One and two. We gotta know what we've been forgiven of. Verse one says, and you are dead in your transgressions and sin. See that? So clear. Paul writes it. We were spiritually dead. We had the spiritual disease called sin. Verse two, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, Satan himself, the spirit that is now working in you, working in the sons of disobedience. You see, we were saved from sin. And we're dead to God. Sin separates us from God. We were seen as sons of disobedience or God's enemies. We were never these cuddly little things or as sinners. God sees us as sons of disobedience, enemies of God. So what we've been forgiven of? Our sin and our condition of being spiritually dead. Let's look at verse 3. What have we been saved from also? Among, among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We lived like the world, 
doing the desires of the flesh. We did whatever we wanted and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were just like everybody else. We were headed towards eternal hell. Children of wrath are headed towards eternal hell. What were we saved from? Eternal hell, eternal judgment, eternal destruction. Grace. We need to understand the bad news to understand grace more. Right? We, it's okay to think about hell. It's okay to think about judgment. It's okay to meditate on the wrath of God. These are good things. That way we'll understand grace more. Let's go to verse 4 and 5 here of Ephesians. What we have been saved to. What did God save us to? But God, but God, right? There it is. God intervenes. But God, if it wasn't for God, we'd be stuck as sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, motivated by His love for us, with which He loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. We had nothing to do with it. With it. Regeneration, rebirth, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. You see, church, that's the critical nature of understanding grace is like the bad news. What did God give us grace from? He took us out of eternal hell and brought us into eternal heaven. He took us from being sons of disobedience, enemies of God, to being adopted as sons. I mean, that's grace. That's grace. That's grace. So if you want to grow in sanctification or become more godly, meditate on the grace of God more. Think about these things. Think about these things for yourself. Just take time to think about the depths of these things. Do not get tired of hearing about grace. Please, this is where we grow in godliness. You will become like that forgiven woman sitting at the feet of Jesus, giving him all. Jesus, take it all, right? My my treasures, my perfume, my dignity, my pride, all of that. My affection, you have my heart. You will become like this woman sitting at the feet of Jesus, pouring out your life as if it's perfume onto the feet of Christ. Not to merit any extra grace, but out of gratitude for Christ. So let's apply this to work here. How do we adorn the gospel at work? I read this quote, I heard this quote before a German philosopher Heinrich Hein said, show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Right? Show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. People of grace are different. People who have been changed by grace are different. We're salty, right? We, we give the flavor of Christ to wherever we go. We, are, we bring light. We're not the light, but we reflect, we reflect the light of Christ into our dark workplaces. So verse 10, going back to the slave in his, uh, of chapter 2 of Titus, a slave is to be trustworthy, not pilfering or stealing. All right, industry standards may be different from God's standards. I get that. Maybe you could kind of fudge on something because everybody's doing this. We have to, we have to do this to compete. Maybe industry standards says you don't really have to keep your word. You make a commitment to a, 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 a boss, or you make a commitment to a partner, and then another better deal comes. What do you do? Wow. What do you do when that shiny trinket is shining in front of you? Say, so do I break my commitment and before it's time and then jump to this like everybody else does? And really family and friends will say, I totally get why you did that. The industry, your coworkers will say, I totally get why you did that. It may be that your boss or even that your partner will say, I totally get why you did that. Or do you let your yeses be yes, let your noes be noes, and you actually stay true to your word? You see, this is the mark of a woman saved by grace. A woman saved by grace at work is committed to those people around them. You're committed to their success. You have their backs. You're willing to sacrifice for them. You're salty. You, got, you flavor the area. You're like, this woman is different. Why does she keep her word? Totally makes sense. That's how you adorn the gospel well at work. You're just different because grace has changed you. Let's go to our final point here. 
be a little bit shorter. Healthy workers adorn the gospel well when we know that we are saved for glory. Saved for glory. Verse 13 says this, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're ever wondering if Jesus is God, memorize verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear right there. Jesus is God. So brother or sister, if you're thinking you might follow in the right God, you are. Jesus is God. But verse 13 says, looking forward. That means you're longing and anticipating the appearing of Christ. You can't wait. It's not like, oh Lord, just take a few more years as Israel's heating up. I'm like, please take uh, 30 more years. I got more stuff to accomplish. You're like, no, Lord, come now, maybe. Right? Come sooner. Sooner is better. I long to see your face. The appearing of the glory of Christ, the Bible says. Well, look what verse 14 says. Jesus paid it all. In, in other words, for, verse 14 is Jesus paid it all. We just sung it earlier. This great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. This is substitution atonement. The eternal one died for the created ones. He redeemed us. In other words, he purchased you and me from the slavery block of sin on the cross. He bled, his blood bled for us so that he could purify for himself a, a people group for his own possession, the Bible says. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And what is this blessed hope when it says in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope? Well, Titus 1 and Titus uh, chapter 1, Titus 3 says the hope of eternal life. Certainly, this is the hope that we have is eternal life. But I want to add more details. Because eternal life, we understand it's forever, but it could be a little bit gray for us. I want to add as much details as I can in this time and, and, and based on what I know as well. Colossians one twenty seven talks about the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Me we're saved for glory. What does that mean? That's talking about glorification. First John three two says we will be like him when we see him. In other words, when we when he appears, when he comes back someday, when you we see him, brother, we're gonna be like him. And glorification is the final stage of salvation. Not only are we saved to be in heaven, what does that actually mean? We have to understand this because this is going to motivate you more. We're actually saved for glory. We're going to be like Him. What does that look like, Pastor? I'm going to give you a few things here. What does glorification look like? That means that, number one, we have fully realized moral and spiritual perfection. Positionally, God sees us as pure. But you know, and our families know that we're not pure. We make mistakes. But in heaven, we're going to live a sinless existence for the first time in our lives. No temptation. No crazy thoughts. Pure motives all the time. Pure love for the brotherhood and for God all the time. We can't even imagine what that's like. Because even in our best days right now, we're tainted with sin. Even our best moments and our highest moments, we're, we're tainted with sin. We're tainted with sin. Number two. So number one, fully realized moral and spiritual perfection. Number two, physical perfection. The youth went to their, uh, to Mount Care and they were taught 1 Corinthians 15. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about we'll get new bodies. Uh, uh, Philippians 3.20 says that, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We're going to have a perfectly glorified body like Christ. We're not going to be Christ, but we're going to be like Christ. That means that if you are sick right now, dealing with some kind of issue, that means if you're older and you're aging and your physical prime and your mental prime is on its way down, I can feel that already for myself. That means that if you can't remember things as you once were, you, you used to be sharp. Remember, ah, it takes a little bit longer. Your children may have to remind you sometimes, hopefully patiently. That means all that's gone. Glorified bodies are going to have perfect minds, perfect bodies. And we're going to be able to do more than our, even in our best days. Isn't that something good to look forward to, church? 
There's more. I'm gonna, I got more for you. Number three. We're going to have fullness of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, We know only in part. A lot of things by faith we're accepting. Amen? But someday we're going to know way more. I don't think we're going to be asking God and, and demanding God for answers. Why did this trial happen? Why did this person pass it? Why did that happen? But we're going to see and we're going to be like, Okay, I get it. Faith turns into sight at that point. Amen? That's different. We never experienced that. And then finally, and the best part about this is this. Number four. We have perfect, unhindered fellowship with God face to face. We're going to be fellowship with God. In the Trinitarian love relation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the church is part of this relationship forever. That's glorification. This is the hope of the gospel. I'm just going to apply this and we'll finish up here. How do we adorn the gospel at work knowing that we're saved for glory? Work is important. I understand that. I mean, in my mind, I spent almost 30 years developing a coaching career. So I understand many of us have gone to school. Many of us work from the ground up even. Maybe you start your business from the ground up. I get that. It's important. It is important. But if your hope is in your work too much, you're not going to be bold for Christ. If your hope is in your work too much, you're not going to be bold for Christ. You're going to be too concerned about upsetting the client or the customers. You're going to be too concerned about... um, not getting that advancement at work. I get that. I felt that. Don't think I don't understand that. I totally felt that. I understand that. Pro uh, football is a business. I understood where the current was going. So I get that. If you're too worried and too, your hope is too tied into your work, you, you're going to be worried about getting fired too much. Who wants to get fired? If your hope is too much in work, you're going to be too worried about being put out or left out of the climbing group, so to speak, right? We understand this. You have less friends. You're worried about you having less friends. Because the more you live your life dominated by Christ and the grace of God, you're going to look different. You're going to sound different. You're going to say things. You're going to actually push people away. The Bible says darkness hates the light. You're not, you're gonna make people feel uncomfortable when you start living with integrity. When you start working hard and people are goofing around, but you just keep working. I gotta work because this is what's pleasing to my Lord. You're gonna stick out. It's gonna cost you. There's gonna be some level of suffering there. And I wanna just encourage us with this brief story before we end here. Certainly I could think of men immediately this guy, this guy, this guy that immediately was into like, help me grow as a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? We're doing Bible studies and it is on. To this day, I'm thankful as I talk to these men, they're still walking with Christ. So there are encouragements like that. So let me rest assured, there's there's some encouragement too. But every once in a while, people will give me the cold shoulder. And recently, just want to share something very personal with you. Sometimes I get texts years later, 10 years later, 7 years later, 6 years later. I get texts and say, Coach, I need to talk to you. I say, sure. So I called. Let's meet up. Can we meet up? Yes. And this man, I was so grateful to see him. I loved this. I loved on him. I loved him. And I couldn't tell, but he confessed something to me. He said, Coach, you know, I, I, I kind of kept you at arm's length. I said, I, I couldn't even tell. I couldn't even tell. I, said, I kept you at arm's length. I said, why though? Why? I never felt it, but why? It was just like looking into a mirror. I knew I wasn't living right. I knew I was denying God. So every time I saw you, I felt bad. I didn't feel good about myself. We were able to pray. We were able to talk about the gospel. Trying to get him plugged in at a good local church. But why do I share that with you? Because I share this to encourage you. 
you just don't know the impact you have till years later. Maybe it's your own children that you're coming to mind right now. We may not know until on the other side of eternity when we're in glory and go like, whoa, what happened? You're here? And think about the stories that we'll talk about forever. All the backstories, all the things that God providentially was using. You just don't know what God is doing through your testimony at work. Let's conclude here in verse 14 says, at the end says, zealous for good works. Just like Christ was the suffering servant joyfully to the Father. You're God's slave. I'm God's slave. And Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, for by grace we have been saved, not as, our, as through works, but as a gift, right? Through faith. God has prepared a good work for you, prepared beforehand, before eternity pass. So I want to encourage you right now, as we end here, We've been made for good works. And maybe you're not quite happy where you're at right now. I get that. I've I've been there too. But where has God placed you right now? Where has God placed you right now? That's the most important assignment right now. It's today. Don't say, I'll be faithful later. Be faithful right now. Be faithful right now. Start adorning the gospel right now, wherever you're at. Make sure your coworkers know that you are in Christ if they don't know you're in, you're not in Christ, you're you're in Christ. There's a problem there, right? If you're not salty enough, if you're not bright enough, there's a problem there. If you're friends with everybody, maybe a problem. I don't know. Maybe you have you're so good at relationships, you're friends with everybody, but that could be a problem. That could be a problem. Make sure they know who you really work for. You work for Christ. Amen. Not amazing. It's so clear. The Bible is so clear. And so helpful. I mean, I could imagine us running to our workplace tomorrow with a different mindset now. Now that it's the Bible, God has made the Bible so crystal clear for you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for uh, being adopted as sons, Lord. And we know in the Roman world, daughters were treated differently, but you treat women and men as sons, as the highest, Lord. We thank you that you've adopted us as sons. Lord, forgive us for not thinking about grace more. Forgive us that we took lightly your kindness, your mercy. Forgive us of these things, Lord. Help us to think about grace in a deeper way. Help us to be like this woman who's been forgiven much, therefore she loved much. We want to be like that. We want Evergreen Baptist Church to be like that. Lord, make us salty, will you? Help us bring a great flavor of Christ to it wherever we go. Help us to be bright. Not because of ourselves, not because of our talent, because you're shining through us, Lord. We're just a bunch of clay pots where the light is shining through us, Lord. So thank you, Father, for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.